All right, so the word of the day is expectations. How many of you expected for those slides to go just perfectly? <laughs> I did. <laughs> All right, I don't know if we're getting a double thing over here. Dale, I don't know about this microphone right here. Thanks. All right, so we're, we're talking about the coming of our Lord. And, and if you read the article this morning in the bulletin, I made the, the statement that if you are real good Bible readers and you keep up with the reading of Scripture in light of the years, events found in the Scriptures, that's kind of known as a lectionary style of reading, you would know what week we are in. I think someone mentioned, I think it was Steve, wherever Steve you are, yes, mentioned it about Palm Sunday, or someone did. Um, and this is the entry where Jesus, at this time of year, comes into Jerusalem. And from a historical standpoint, this would have been the day, this particular day. And so there's expectations during that time. And speaking of expectations, Shakespeare said, expectation is the root of all heartache. Now, I don't fully believe that that is the case, that expectations is the root of all heartache, but there's a lot of heartache attached to expectations. Tons, right? There are, there are people that go into marriages and husbands and wives look at each other going, hmm, is that who I was expecting to marry? That happens, right? Um, I expected all the dishes to be placed on this side of the cabinet. It's not on that side. Things like that. <laughs> I'm speaking from personal. <laughs> right, Julie? And so we've got expectations. Or you have expectations where, you know, children, it's Christmas time. Oh, I didn't get the gift that I was wanting. So there are a number of scenarios like that, right? So there's a reality check. We know that life is filled with disappointments, and it's often attached to expectations, unrealized, unfulfilled expectations. And so we're talking about the expectations of when Jesus starts coming into Jerusalem on this particular day 2,000 years ago. So we're talking about the coming king. And as it was read for us um, by Jordan this morning in Mark chapter 11, and we could read it in all four gospel accounts about Jesus coming to Jerusalem, it was with these expectations that we see this relationship between our king of kings, Jesus, and the people that he was going to, to save. So when we're looking at these expectations, I think what is very interesting is that when, when he was coming into the city and people have, are having these expectations that this is the Messiah, a number of them actually believed him to be that Messiah, they had an expectation of how he would come. Think about that. In fact, as I put in the bulletin, there's an, an author. His name is um, Marcus Borg. He's a co-author of this book dealing with the last days of Jesus um, as he's entering into the city of Jerusalem. Brings out a fascinating um, dichotomy that's going on on this particular day. So we may be familiar with the fact that here is Jesus coming in, and we've read the passage just now where he's going to ride in on a donkey, right? And you have many of the followers of Jesus, they're taking their coats and they're putting it on the, as a saddle-like on the donkey, and then on the road itself, they're putting their coats on the road. And then others are cutting off 
palm fronds, if you will, the, the branches, and placing them on the road, and Jesus is walking in. And from our vantage point, we have an expectation of this majestic picture, like the king of kings coming into the city, right? But a donkey? What kind of royalty is that? An entourage? It's just him. You've got his followers that are there and they're with this procession, but you're not having all this pomp and circumstance. But there was pomp and circumstance that day. I don't know exactly what time of day, but by this time in the year, you know, around 30-ish or so um, AD, by this time it was an annual occurrence where the Roman military actually marched into Jerusalem on this very day on a yearly basis. You see, as Jesus is coming in from the east and making his way, more than likely, if he's going to make his way to the temple, he's going to cross that bridge where the Mount of Olives comes to the temple itself. Well, on the other side of the city, from the sea, the Mediterranean Sea, coming eastward from the west, is the Roman military. And they're coming in with chariots every year on this quote-unquote Palm Sunday. And they would bring in this might, if you will, and power to let the Jews know that the Romans are watching over them. In fact, that's part of the reason why you have this fortress. For those of you who want to you get your, um, your Bible atlases out and you look at the northwest quadrant of the city of Jerusalem in the first century. And on the very northwest, yeah, northeast part of the city, I should say. But on the northwest part outside the courtyard of the temple grounds is this big fortress Antonia's fortress. And, and you've got all the turrets, right, that make up this fortress. And that's where the military would be. I, I guess over a thousand of them could be in this fortress. And then on top of that, at the highest turret on the southern part of the, the fortress would be an overlooking of all the temple ground and over all the city to ensure that the Jews were behaving themselves. So every year at this time, not only are you, are you sensing this, this gathering, the swelling of Jerusalem for the Passover feast, but you've got the Roman military coming in. And with them would have been Pilate coming in from Caesarea. And so it's a very interesting contrast to look on one side. Here is Jesus on a donkey coming in by himself. And on the other side of the city, all these soldiers with all their armor, all their weapons, and they're coming in in a large number from the West. And what you're actually seeing visually, if you are a Jew and you go through this scene after Jesus enters the city and, and looks back with hindsight, it's like this clash coming, it's like a battle. And that's why I put in the article, it's for the kids, because kids love these um, video games, Battle Royale. That's what you have, right? It's the epic battle of biblical history. It's an amazing picture. I believe when Mark wrote his gospel account, he had this in mind. In fact, it's the reason why we can see in scriptures this illustration of contrast between what you've seen with the way the Romans would come in with the lowly way Jesus entered into the city. And so he's on a donkey, not on chariots. He's by himself, not with an army. And he is armed with nothing from a physical standpoint, while his counterparts are full of weapons, 
ready to squash any uprising. And if you remember, the Jews had been known for their uprising in the past. And they were ready for that not to happen again, the Romans were. And so we have this contrast. And of course, we, we read in Ephesians chapter 6, that very contrast, right? We are told that we have a battle that's going on. We are reminded as Christians that our battle is not against flesh and blood, right? It's against the spiritual dark forces of evil. And so we're told to put on the whole armor of God. And that armor looks very, very different than what we are used to. That's the contrast that Mark has in this gospel. So it's not the expected kingly entry. And speaking of expectations, I want us to go back to um, Zechariah and read in the Old Testament scriptures. I want you to go back, um, open your Bibles to the Old Testament scriptures. And just before you get to Malachi... The last book of the Old Testament scriptures is the prophet Zechariah. And I want you to open up in Zechariah. I want to read the first nine verses. We're going to focus in on verse nine, but read the first nine uh, verses because we're talking about a time in which Israel has been defeated. um, They're at a loss as to what's going to happen to their nation. And so Zechariah the prophet opens up with words, hopefully of encouragement of what kind of king they would have. It says in verse 1 of Zechariah chapter 9, the burden of the word of the Lord against the land of Hadrach and Damascus its resting place. For the eyes of men in all the tribes of Israel are on the Lord. Also against Hamath, which borders on it. And against Tyre and Sidon, though they are very wise. For Tyre built herself a tower, heaped up silver like the dust and gold like the mire of streets. Behold, the Lord will cast her out. He will destroy her power in the sea, and she will be devoured by fire. Ashkelon shall see it and fear. Gaza also shall be very sorrowful. And Ekron, for he dried up her expectation. The king shall perish from Gaza, and Ashkelon shall not be inhabited. A mixed race shall settle in Ashdod, and I will cut off the pride of the Philistines. I will take away the blood from his mouth and the abominations from between his teeth. But he who remains, even he shall be for our God and shall be like a leader in Judah and Ekron like a Jebusite. I will camp around my house because of the army, because of him who passes by and him who returns. No more shall an oppressor pass through them, for now... I have seen with my eyes. And with that backdrop, he then says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Rejoice, shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just in having salvation, lowly and riding on a donkey, a colt, the foal of a donkey. And he goes on to say, I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the horse from Jerusalem. The battle bow shall be cut off. He shall speak peace to the nations. His dominion shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. He goes on talking about how God is going to save his people. And it is through these words of the prophet Zechariah that the Jews over the centuries began to formulate this this concrete picture of what the Messiah was going to look like. That he was going to bring in great salvation 
And so by the time Jesus is entering into the city, they had some very kingly expectations of the future Messiah. Big picture. And I don't know if you picked up on the play on words. There's a number of them in Zechariah, which I find very interesting. Just think about the picture that he was saying to him in verse 10, I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim. The horse from Jerusalem. The battle bow shall be cut off. He shall speak peace to the nations. It almost sounds like the walls of Jericho. Not a tool is used, not a weapon is used. But a shout to the Lord. Interesting picture. The interesting picture where here are these chariots coming in from the west on this particular day, while from the east, a man on a donkey by himself. Again, if you are a Jew and you have the mindset that you're going to be able to withstand against all these surrounding nations, including now the greatest empire the world has known, the Roman Empire, you're going to expect, you're going to have to have an uprising of people. And right now you actually do, by the way. You have the Jews that were known as zealots. These are Jews that are very jealous for God. And in their minds, their expectation is they're going to be able to rile up enough of the Jews, kind of like the Hasmoneans, right? The Maccabees that had done centuries before. And that they were going to be able to arm themselves and overthrow these countries. And once again, they'll have a king like David that would rule and send all their enemies scattering. That's their expectation. And so here is Mark. And Mark in his gospel recounts this entry into Jerusalem, not just from a standpoint that he's coming in on a donkey, but the clash, the battle. And the battle is going to come through the weapon of peace. But a paradox, a weapon called peace. A paradox indeed. So we've got these expectations. Jesus comes in, and of course, one of the first things he does is he goes into the temple and he gets his whip out and he throws over the money changers tables and and he starts to upbraid all the religious leaders. Well, that's not what we're expecting. And as the week unfolds, everyone's expectations are being shattered because this was the Messiah we thought. This is the person we laid down our coats for. And what we are getting is Not what we were expecting. They expected Jesus to be their answer to the Roman Empire. They were expecting to see the son of David in all his power, in all his military might. And that's not what they were getting. Let that sink in, brethren. Because you know, just as surely as they have expectations, guess what we have? We also have expectations. And we just have the the blessing of hindsight. We've got the blessing of being outside of this first century picture where we get to see that broad picture and go, oh, yeah, I get to see how God was working. They were not able to to see that. In fact, in John chapter 11, I'm going to read verses 45 to 50 because many of them were wondering as Jews including the leaders among the Jews, are wondering what to make of Jesus. Again, because of their expectations. I want you to read the the last six verses, verses 45 through 50 
in John chapter 11. Read that with me. Notice the, the air, if you will, that is about them with regard to Jesus. It says that many of the Jews who had come to Mary had seen the things Jesus did, believed in him. But some of them went away to the Pharisees and told them the things Jesus did. Wait a second. These are believing Jews who had gone to Mary. Believing. Believing in the Messiah. Some of those believing Jews left among the disciples and went to the religious leaders. They went to the Pharisees and told them the things Jesus did. Now, the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered a council and then said, what shall we do? For this man works many signs. If we let him alone like this, everyone will believe in him and the Romans will come and take away both our place and the nation. You see, they had expectations placed upon this person who, are do, who was doing many signs. And they didn't like it because he forced them and challenge them with their own walk with God. He rebuked them publicly. And many of them, having been excoriated, didn't like this Jesus that they've come to know. And on top of that, you have disciples, followers of Jesus, who are reporting what Jesus is doing to these religious leaders. They've got questions likewise. In verse 49, one of them, Caiaphas, being a high priest of that year, said to the rest of the council, you know nothing at all, nor do you consider that it is expedient for us that one man should die for the people and not the whole nation perish. That's the picture. And during this week then, the council, as a result of this view that they have of Jesus, goes about and stirs up basically a people against Jesus. So much so that the very followers of Jesus, those who had actually laid their coats among them, would leave them one or leave Jesus one by one. And if you know this picture, by the time we get to the cross, which we'll look at next week, by the time we get to the cross, even his own disciples are questioning, the ones that are closest to him, the apostles. So that, if I can jump ahead of next week, they also leave him one by one so that Jesus is all alone. Expectations. You know, who is this king that's supposed to be ruler over my life? Let me add even one more. Because even the most godly of believers in the Messiah can have a faulty expectation. If we go back to the early part of Jesus' ministry when John who is laying the groundwork for the coming of the Messiah himself, he is now imprisoned and he has questions. Think about this. John the Baptist, the greatest of all prophets according to scripture, has questions. Go to Matthew 11. Read some of what's going on here. and you, It might give us insight into the mind of John the Baptist in a manner that maybe we had not considered before. Think about this. Matthew chapter 11, verse 1. It came to pass when Jesus finished commanding his 12 disciples that he departed from there to teach and to preach in their cities. And when John had heard in prison about the works of Christ, he sent two of his disciples, 
So here he is, he's in prison. And while imprisoned, he takes two of his disciples and he sends them off to Jesus. And says to Jesus through the two disciples, are you the coming one or do we look for another? This is the same John, by the way, who in John chapter 1, as Jesus was entering into his presence out into the wilderness, he said, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Same John who now says, are you the coming one? Or are we looking for someone else? I believe John's got questions about this Jesus as the Messiah. Jesus then says to those disciples in verse 4, Go and tell John the things which you hear and see. The blind see, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear. The dead are raised up, and the poor have the gospel preached to them. And hang on these words for a minute. And blessed is he who is not offended because of me. Those are the last words of Jesus to be told to John. Blessed is he who is not offended because of me. I don't know if that's all that's intended in that passage, but it's a definite possibility. It's very easy to see how even the most godly among the followers of Jesus could have questions about the coming king, the coming Messiah. And so when we're looking at these kinds of expectations, well, what are yours? What are mine? You know, there's a lot of people on this planet that have expectations about God himself. There's a lot of expectations about how God rules. We're studying in the book of Job, right? And even, even in the book of Job, we are seeing expectations placed upon Job, placed upon his friends about their relationship with God. And we do the same thing. We ask the questions like, why, God? Why me? Why is this happening to me? Or, or how do you allow for these things to be taking place? If you truly are a God of justice, you truly are the one who is righteous in this world, why do you let evil just run rampant in this world? We have expectations upon God. What are yours? I believe that if we were to look at all of our expectations and categorize them, generally speaking, some of our expectations of, of God or of Jesus himself are simply unfounded. It's just expectations that we somehow have and we place it upon God like as if, God, if you really were good at what you're doing, you would think like I think. So imagine the created saying to the creator, here's how you should behave in ruling this universe. In fact, that very expectation is the book of Job, the reason for this dialogue in the book of Job. Others, however, they'll go to scriptures, they'll go to the truths of God's word, but they'll use interpretations of those things and have expectations based upon it. In fact, that's the reason why we have so many debates in the name of Christianity today. Because we have expectations of how we look at Scripture and our relationship with God, and we place that and we create a theology based on it. That's what happens. And so we interpret Scriptures to justify our beliefs, and we place that into the category of how we are to follow God. Think about that. Those expectations come out in our 
discussions that come out in our work, in our worship. And when our expectations are not met, we feel like someone's done something wrong or God himself. That's the reality. That's what happens. If our expectations are met, we ask questions or worse, we place blame. So if we're looking at these kinds of expectations, how, how do we place that upon our coming king? Because he's already come and he showed us how we're supposed to live. He has actually placed expectations upon us that we follow him, right? So God has placed upon us our expectations of how we can live life in worthy of his calling. So think about this. God has put his expectations upon those who are going to follow after Jesus. And do we follow the king of kings? It's not enough that we just come over here and we worship our God. But what is our life looking like day to day? Are we like our king who came into Jerusalem lowly and on a donkey? Do we live lowly and humble? We're told in Romans chapter 12 verse 16 not to associate with the haughty. But instead, go spend time with those of humility. Spend time with the lowly. Spend time with the humble. Isn't that what Jesus did? He came to heal those who were sick, not those who were well. Those who were broken. Do we seek to follow his lead in in being able to love our enemies? Right? Remember, again, we're quoting out of Zechariah, Mark does. And we're reading that quote. And it says that he came with peace. He didn't come with a sword. Well, unless you want to say his sword was truth. But his truth was to bring reconciliation between a sinner who is an enemy of God and God himself. That's the peace. Is that the way we treat the enemies of God? Do you come with peace? Our expectations somehow, when it gets turned on us, should be rather clear. But we have difficulty with it because our pride gets in the way. And we somehow, in the name of standing for truth, we may actually do injustice to the very ones that Jesus Christ died for. So think of not just your expectations of God, but what he has placed upon you. And that's exactly what we're told in Romans chapter 12. We're continuing on. In fact, that whole text, we just, in fact, um, coincidentally, we have just gone through Romans 12 in our study at Brookdale. And that's one of the very things that we're focused on. And here are, here are Jews and Gentiles, and they're told to get along with each other in the body of Christ. But he goes one step further, and he says, now you go and take this type of reconciliation with those who are outside the body of Christ. Go love your enemies. Be good to them. Bless those who persecute you. He goes on with a a litany of expectations among those who are called to follow in the walk of our Lord. So in verse 20 and verse 21, he says, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. You think your your enemy has an expectation that you're going to feed him? Probably not. But you feed him. If he's thirsty, give him a drink. You think he's expecting that? In doing so, you will heap coals of fire on his head. 
as I mentioned to the class at Brookdale, don't think of this as like, yeah, oh yeah, I'm going to love it till it kills you. That's not it. He's not wanting to do harm to his enemies. He wants them to worship God. He wants them to come to Jesus. You're following in his lead of loving his enemies. Dying for his enemies. And we are dying to ourselves so that the enemies of the cross can come to it. And then he finishes off um, with the idea of, of these expectations of how we live amongst the persecuted. In fact, um, I didn't have this here, but I want you to go to Acts chapter 5. I want you to see this mindset that we can read of in 1 Peter chapter 2 and 1 Peter chapter 4. Because this is a mindset that I think is absolutely beautiful with regard to the people of God. Let's see here. Oh, I lost it. I just had it in my head. Anyway, they're imprisoned, right? And then they're released from prison, and Peter and the disciples go back to the disciples. So someone can point it out to me after the sermon. But if I remember correctly, here in Acts chapter 5, he says, as Luke is recounting, they consider themselves worthy to be of shame for Jesus. Worthy to be shamed for Jesus. They were beaten. And they had a mindset that instead of not welcoming the persecution, they praised God for it. Because they could follow in his footsteps. Imagine that. That's the picture that the other apostles adopted from learning and following Jesus. You know, for us, not only do we not want confrontation, sometimes you want to give an eye for an eye, right? And he says, no. Verse 41. Verse where? 41. 41. Thank you. Yes, thank you. So they departed from the presence of the council, Acts 5, verse 41, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer shame for his name, the name of Jesus. Think about that. It's a beautiful passage. Now, with that exemplified, look at the teachings that the Apostle Peter himself gave with regard to how Christians should view us and the expectations that God has placed upon us because I think there's a disconnect in our modern Western form of Christianity. We don't think of persecution. We think that that's just something in the first century. And for whatever reason, we can see it in other parts of the world, but we have difficulty seeing it in our walk in this country, let alone in the Western Hemisphere. And so in 1 Peter chapter 2 and also in 1 Peter chapter um, 4, this teaching is, is quite obvious as to expectations placed upon us. So in verse 20, yes, verse 20 and 21, I'm back up to verse 18. When they speak great swelling words of emptiness, they allure through the lusts of the flesh, through lewdness, the ones who have actually escaped those who live in error. While they promise them liberty, they themselves are slaves of corruption. For by whom a person is overcome, by him also he is brought into bondage. 
For if after the, they have escaped the pollutions of the world through the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them and overcome the latter end worse for them than the beginning. For it would have been better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than having known it to turn from the holy commandment to be delivered to them. So he's saying, here are these false teachers, and I want you to um, look after the fact that they get persecuted through these false teachers. They're going to go through this persecution. And then he adds later on in the chapter. I'm sorry, I was, yeah. I was reading the wrong chapter, my bad. I'm turning 50 this year. It's got to be it. <laughs> Let me go back. First Peter. So in First Peter 2, here we go. He says, what credit is it when you are beaten for your faults? You take it patiently. But when you do good and suffer, if you take it patiently, this is commendable before God. For to this you were called because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that you should follow in his steps. He goes on to say in chapter 4, verse 16, if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed. Let him glory or glorify God in this matter. It's a beautiful thing. We're disconnected from it. We don't want persecution. Jesus went to the cross knowing he was going to be persecuted. He had already been persecuted during his ministry. Stephen, the other apostles, the other disciples of Jesus counted themselves worthy to be shamed for the name of Jesus. There's a quote. There's a um, person by the name of Wayne uh, Stiles. And he wrote this beautiful, beautiful te text about expectations. I want you to let it sink in. He writes, and he wrote an article called, When Jesus Fails Your Expectations. He says in the latter part of his article, we should always hesitate to assume the gospel doesn't work when we simply cannot see the big picture. When we struggle to connect truth with life, we must embrace the limitations of our understanding and also the limitlessness of God's. Our inability to understand Jesus should not give cause for worship, not cause for doubt. So if we're wondering you know, hey, things aren't working the way they are, and I've got these expectations. Instead, we should bow down and worship our God in our lack of understanding. But not cause for doubt. So here we are. We're trying to, to reach the world with the gospel of Jesus Christ, the very people whom Jesus died for. We're trying to reach, right? They have expectations. They have expectations about God, about the Bible, about Jesus as the Christ, and they have expectations about you and I because they look at people like you and I as supposedly as followers of Jesus. We're not going to be perfect, but we're going to have to give them a reason for the hope that lies within us. We're going to have to give them a reason for not looking at us going, well, they're just a bunch of hypocrites or they're just a bunch of, and just fill in the blank because they have expectations. Just like you have an expectation, when you're sharing the gospel, what is your expectation? I know what mine is. I have a hope that they're going to turn to the Lord. 
I have an expectation that they will, knowing that many will not. But I'm always expecting it. So my question to you then is, are you living up to the expectations? Not from a standpoint that, that you're going to meet all of them, but you can walk worthy of the calling so that when you share the gospel, it's met. And when God's expectations that you have placed upon him don't pan out the way you think it should pan out, wise words here, worship God. Realize that we have limited understanding. And as we had studied in um, the book of Ecclesiastes, it's all hevel, right? It's just a cloud, and we don't get to see that big picture because we're stuck in the cloud. But we worship God nonetheless. We don't doubt. We trust in him, and we continue doing the good that God wants us to do. So if you're here this morning, and I want you to think about this expectation. God sent his son to die for you. That's the reason why his son was coming in as this lowly king who is going to overcome the world. He wants you, the world, to be part of his kingdom. His expectation is for you to change over time. That you will turn away from the way you've been living to him, following him. That's why he's expected you to walk worthy of the calling with which he's called you. And I pray, brethren, that the rest of us that are here, that are trying to walk worthy of that calling, that we consider the very connections that God has called us to reach those who are lost, knowing that we may be persecuted at some point. And it's not like we are wanting it in a sense that we're saying, I'm going to do whatever I can to get the persecution. But we are ready for it. And we count ourselves worthy of shame when it does come. So if you're here and you're subject to the calling of our Lord, I pray that you will die to yourself, that you be able to be risen in newness of life, or to come back to the Lord, or even by asking for our prayers. Why don't you come now as together we stand and sing.